Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 14th, 2005. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are Bob Novella. Hello, everyone. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, fellow non-believers. So we're going to start off with science or fiction tonight. Good start. It's time to play Science or Fiction. Again, Science or Fiction, I scour, scour the news for interesting scientific facts or news items, and then I present three items, two of which are true or real and one of which is false. Uh, The theme this week is early man. These are all, the three things I'm going to give you are either abilities or technologies or things that early man was doing by approximately 30,000 years ago. That's early. (laughs) Yes, we're talking about Homo sapiens, which is our own species. So by 30,000 years ago, which, which one of the three things were we not yet doing? Now, of course, the evidence... Um, for all of this is is mostly inferential, but there is there is reasonable, compelling evidence you know, for the two that are that are correct. Okay, you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Ready. The first one is footwear. So did humans thirty thousand years ago wear footwear? The second one is using fire for cooking food, not just using fire, but specifically cooking food. And the third one is the use of transporters. No, I'm kidding. Mm. The, th- the third one is domesticated horses. 30,000 years ago. 30,000 years. Okay. All right, I'll go first. It's obviously horses, because that one's the most difficult to believe. And there you have it. Okay, simple enough. Bob? Um, hmm. I don't think, I don't think they had footwear. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is a lot of primitive tribes that are extant today, and I don't think they wear anything on their feet. Um, fire for cooking. I, my first thought is that they, they, they would have had it by then. Then you got domesticated horses. I mean, that seems is too obvious, and maybe that's your whole plan, is to make something that's too obvious actually be the right one. Um, Always go for the most obvious uh, the most obvious answer. This is what we're taught by Occam's Razor. Uh, you know, I might have to go with domesticated horses as well. All right, Evan. Boy, they all sound very plausible, don't they? Something. I, th- I have a feeling it's fire, and I, I don't. The fire one. I don't really know why. I think uh, obviously. Are you harkening back to the Flintstones? Well, <laughs> I'm just. You know. <laughs> To, to put it in that specific context of cooking their food with fire. Um, that is my second choice. That's a close, that's a close uh, tie. For I'll, I'll just go with that. I can't really give an expo- uh, okay. a real explanation as to why, but I'm just going to guess it. It's your gut feeling. Yes. Well, you all agree, apparently, that 30,000 years ago people were wearing footwear. That's actually only fairly recently discovered and the evidence for that is indirect. There is direct evidence for more recent footwear going back thousands of years. The problem is that the kind of of shoes that people would have been wearing, I guess basically slabs of leather on the bottom of their feet, wouldn't really fossilize or preserve very well. 
So the, the most recent published evidence for the use of footwear going back between 27 and 30,000 years was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science by a man named Trinkhaus, who measured the foot bones of ancient people, and around 30,000 years ago in certain populations, the size of their little toes became smaller, which he reasons... Right. When you walk barefoot, you use your small toes for traction, and therefore the the, the bones would be bigger from use. Okay. And they're superfluous if you have footwear. When you, if you have footwear, you don't need them for traction, so they get they get they don't stay as big. They, they would be smaller. So again, indirect evidence, but that. So that would. So Steve, that would just be some sort of genetic drift towards smaller. Well, they're just just uh, you know muscles and bones are bigger with use and smaller without use. So it could not have been genetic, just. Oh, um, okay. Uh, just a measurement, just a measure of use. The uh, the second one, using fire for cooking food. Now, the evidence for this is pretty compelling. And it is, in fact, the discovery of scorched animal bones in the fires of, in the, you know, the hearths, what would have been the hearth of the dwellings of primitive man. So the question is, how far back does that evidence go? It actually goes back all the way to Homo erectus, about wow. a million and a half or more years ago. No. Wow. So we've been, they've been using fire to cook food for a long time. Good for them. Smart. Domesticated horses is the correct answer. Bob and Perry both got it right. <laughs> Goes without saying. The, <laughs> the evidence for that mainly comes from the wear on the horse's teeth from uh, wearing a bridle. Long in uh, the tooth. Uh. So yeah, the, the teeth would, would wear a certain way only if they had, you know, a bit in their mouth. Um, although there is some contention about whether or not the horses were truly domesticated or if they were just tamed, and, and how could we tell the difference? Um, you know, a tamed horse would be one that was say raised from a foal, but their horses would not be considered technically domesticated until they uh, could be bred in captivity. But the evidence for this only goes back about 3,000 years, so shorter by an order of magnitude. So that's actually fairly recent. Well, how long have primitive men and, and uh, horses lived, uh, you know, near near each other? You know, maybe you know, maybe they we haven't lived in close proximity until you know, I, I don't know. Well, horses range throughout Europe and Asia, you know, for a long time. So okay. It wasn't that. They they were never present in Africa. The closest thing to a horse in Africa is a zebra. They made several migrations across the Bering Strait into North America, although they evolved in Europe and Asia. Why do you suppose they didn't domesticate zebras? I don't, I don't think you can. You can't. They're not, yeah, they're not domesticatable. They, they don't follow a herd stallion the way that, regular, that, the way that horses do. So in, in order to be, uh, in order for an animal to be amenable to domestication, they have to have certain behavior patterns that could an be exploited. Yeah, they either need they need to have built in some kind of subservient or loyalty, you know, behavior to either yeah, like with dogs to a pack leader, with horses to a to a herd stallion, and some species just can't be domesticated. Huh. So some people could in fact credit European, you know, the rise of European civilization to the fact that we had a lot of species that we could domesticate, oxen and horses and cows and pigs, and there really are no domesticatable species in Africa. And that, that may have been a significant impact on the rate at which you know, they were able to, to uh, wage war and you know, raise civilization. Oh, I think that would be a huge hmm. factor. Yeah, yeah. 
Imagine the uh, the military advantage of of cavalry. You know, so it's oh sure, can't be underestimated. It's a good one. Okay, since today is September fourteenth, just a few days after the fourth anniversary of nine eleven, September eleventh, two thousand and one, I thought we would dedicate the rest of the show to discussing nine eleven conspiracy theories. Um, pretty much starting on September twelfth of two thousand and one. There were um, many conspiracy theorists claiming that the standard uh, U.S. government story about what happened, essentially that uh, groups of al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked those four planes, you know, crashing one into each of the two twin towers, the World Trade Center, and one into the Pentagon, the fourth one, the, the passengers hearing about the fates of the other of the other planes by people who were talking to them over cell phones, there was some struggle for the for control of the plane, and all we really know is that the plane crashed without ever reaching its target. Immediately, I think the conspiracies first took root in the Muslim world itself, and I, to this day, I think there is still widespread belief that the entire affair was an elaborate Jewish conspiracy meant to frame the Muslim world uh, for this act. Uh, well, I mean, and, and, and they offer as, as evidence the fact that there were, you know, that somehow Jewish people were informed the day before, whatever, not to go to work. Four thousand that, that Jews didn't day. show up for work, I believe, is the standard line. Right. I got, I got the email. Evan, you were, you got the email to stay away from the, the towers. I did, and uh, and it worked like a charm for me. Yeah, thanks for forwarding that to me, Evan. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he couldn't, Bob. It, it, it is, fr- frankly, it was one of the more uh, well sickening uh, conspiracy theories to come out, and like you said, Steve, certainly one of the first um, mm-hmm. to be raised. And for uh, coming from the uh, extreme Muslim world. If it in fact did generate there, which it probably did, uh, it's I mean, is it, unfortunately is it based, not surprising. It, was that based on anything, or was that just you know pulled right out of their butts? Based on ju- the juvenile hatred they have of, of Jewish people. I mean, was the there a fact that got error. distorted? No, or? that was totally no. made up. Somebody, I don't, just I don't think. The, for a lot of things, drive conspiracies. In, in this case, I think it was pure rumor, not really based on any facts. Um, Yes, but why did the rumor generate? That's what I was yeah, saying. Yeah, because of the, the historical animosity between you know the Muslims and the Jews, because of Inability Israel, largely. Deep, you know, deeply held beliefs. And a lot of these rumors were, were spread from the pulpit in the Muslim world, and people believed it because, you know, because the religious leaders were telling them so. Uh, and, of course, once you get into the mindset of the conspiracy, then any... Um, controverting evidence is easily dismissed. It's just part of the conspiracy. And the lack of evidence for a conspiracy is also just part of the conspiracy. Just, there's just obviously uh, an elaborate cover-up. So well, That's my favorite. Steve, you got to relate that story about that, uh, that show we saw about the, the Satanists Satanist in that The Satanists. Yeah, this was, a, I believe, an HBO Classic. special covering a... Uh, this is a bit of an aside, but it does illustrate the, 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 this logical point that um, in, I believe, in a town in Texas, a, a, a girl was missing, essentially, and it was sort of an unexplained missing person case, and suspicion fell on a local family that were kind of outsiders. Um, they were kind of like the weird family in town. Um, and the, uh, the, the investigators in the, in the town, the local investigators, 
uh, was essentially taken, controlled by a, a born again who was convinced that this family was, was Satanists and that they were committing satanic you know, ritual murder. And just to, you know, to cut to the chase on this story, they built this elaborate sort of witch hunt and, and around this family. Um, when finally, you know, people in town who had some sense called, you know, essentially asked to have you know, federal investigators sent in to take over the case. The, the, the federal investigator in, you know, uh, interrogating or debriefing the, the local investigator um, asked him the following question. He said, now, we've had people combing over the woods where these, these you know, multiple brutal murders occurred, and we didn't find a single scrap of physical evidence. So you're normally at a murder site, you know, if somebody's hacked up, there's physical evidence all over the place. We didn't find a shred of physical evidence to say that anything happened there. Doesn't that bother you? And the, the local, you know, the born-again investigator responded to that by saying, now listen, these people are master Satanists. The fact that there's no evidence proves that they did it, <laughs> which is astounding. Just astounding. Yeah, God. I hope that's you, a logical fallacy. <laughs> right. Well, that's you know, that's the argument from ignorance, or or the saying that you know, there's, there's the lack of evidence, you know, proves that there was a, that there was basically either a conspiracy to hide the evidence, or in this case, that the people were so skilled that they it just proves their skill in hiding the evidence. Well, in fact, it doesn't prove anything except for the fact that there's no evidence. So it's the same essentially logical fallacy, one of the major logical fallacy pillars of grand conspiracy theories, which is what we're talking about. Now, you know, gr- a grand conspiracy basically involves multiple, grand, multiple people over a long period of time and it involves some, you know, very, very obviously huge, huge co- cover up, world domination, you know, we're controlling, you know, major parts of civilization or governments. The, the problem with grand conspiracies is that they tend to collapse under their, their own weight. Um, the believers in such conspiracies divide the world up into three types of people. There are the people who are carrying out the conspiracy. These people are enormously evil. They, are, they, they wield incredible resources. They are masterfully clever and yet at the same time, incomprehensibly stupid, which is one of the the key self-contradictions of these theories. The the people who see the conspiracy for what it is, who are the army of light trying to save the world from from the evil conspiracists, and then everyone else who are just the dupes, just the the, the herds who don't know what's going on, those are, that's that's the way they view the world. So the 9-11 conspiracy falls into that mold. Um, Perry, I think you you sent me this site, Mm -hmm. um, and just reading it is interesting. This is... um, Which one's this? Some of the theories out there are quite... uh, This one is a a website, I think it's called The Barrel of Conspiracies, is the name Mm -hmm. of this article by uh, Nocher Ganesh. So he he relays the standard story, as we all know it, then he, he writes, taking the story apart... The official story of the U.S. government is that the hijackers belonging to the Al-Qaeda controlled the planes. American flights, American Airline Flight 11 hit the uh, 1,300-foot t- north tower at, at the 96th floor, and Flight 175 hit the south tower at the 80th floor. So it says there are serious flaws in this explanation. The flight, and then he goes to talk about the fact that... Um, the flights that were later to hit the World Trade Center buildings were flying in one of the most intensely monitored airspaces in the whole of the USA. 
all over these areas and elsewhere in the U.S. when aircraft are off course, the Federal Aviation Authority notifies the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, and fighters are scrambled from the nearest airbase to speedily intercept and escort the wayward plane back to course and force it to land and even take and even attack if the situation warrants. So he's basically saying, why didn't NORAD dispatch fighters? Right. Well, the transponder was off, wasn't it? Exactly. You're right. You anticipate my point. Yes. The the hijackers turned off their transponders. Transponders, you know, are little devices in airplanes that send out a signal, basically saying, identifying their lo- their identity and location. The these were these were deactivated before the planes were taken off course. Therefore. For a while, anyway, it could be seen as a, a simple malfunction. Transponders malfunction all the time. Uh, and in fact, fighters, F-15 fighters were dispatched, right, with, which the, the, the author does, it, does admit, because why was it a half hour later? You know, why were they dispatched from Massachusetts? Although the, the, these planes did take off from Boston. So what he's essentially doing is a process we call anomaly hunting. You look at any complex historical event and search for apparent anomalies. And without really seriously trying to provide all of the possible explanations for that anomaly, declare it unsolvable and therefore evidence that that the standard story is not true. And then leap from that to say that therefore there was a conspiracy, whatever. The government actually brought down the towers and and the whole thing about the planes was a ruse. Um, so the, the logical fall- fallacy there is, is largely an argument from ignorance, saying that, well, we can't explain this anomaly, and therefore th- there must be some conspiracy going on. This, the same logic is applied to the assassination of JFK. It's, it's, uh, the conspiracy theorists don't put forth any actual evidence of a specific conspiracy they just essentially hype apparent anomalies or unexplained details of what happened and say, well, this doesn't make any sense, therefore there was a conspiracy. Again, it's just a giant right. logical fallacy, the argument and for there's, there's always going to be an- anomalies. You're never going to have all the information that you, that you need to, you know, to, to fully explain them. So, so these are never going to go away, and that's true of so many other phenomena. Mm-hmm. Where, you, know, you, you just can't have all the information you need, like, like UFOs. You know, you've, you've got a, an incident right. that somebody relates. It's kind of a sketchy description. There's, there's some unknowns, and you find some anomalies, and damn, there, there's proof that, that there's UFOs, and there's conspiracy right. covering it up, and they're never going to go In this case, away. the anomalies aren't even very compelling. No. I mean, no. They're not, they're, no, they're really no. not. I, I just saw a uh, special the other night in Discovery called the Flight 93, the flight that fought back. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was very, mm-hmm. it was very good. It was a docudrama based to as much as they could on, on all the evidence they had. It was very interesting. But just as an aside on that one, too, the uh, the uh, murderers that took over the plane, they shut the transponder off, you know, to make it... Right. Um, and I was wondering myself, why are transpo- Why can you shut a transponder off? Why why allow the pilot to do that? Why isn't it just hardwired into the plane? Well, I, think they, I don't think they flipped a switch. I think they cut the wire. No, they flipped the switch. It's a switch. Yeah, really? It's a switch. The pilot a switch? Can shut it off. Hmm. You can shut it on and off. I, I don't know. I don't I, have an answer. I, I, I don't know why it's on. It's on, doesn't it? Why yeah. would you ever? Where would there? Why would it ever be desirable to shut off your transponder on a commercial aircraft? 
I, I just found that very strange. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. Very strange. I don't know. Unless they think they need that option in case of times yeah, of war. Mili- I don't know. A, a I don't, military I don't know what the aircraft, to that is. sure. But a, a commercial sure. jetliner? Sure. Yeah. Well, what have you. This an aside. You know, why was it, why aren't the doors to the cockpits lockable? You know, why was it so easy right. to gain access to those cockpits? I mean, clearly, the, you know, the planes were not designed with that level of security in mind. And there were, you know, obvious, you know, gaps in security. And, and those hijackings could not have taken place if they could just simply lock the cockpit. They would that, that 9-11 would not right. have occurred. Um, it's always easy to make those observations in hindsight. True. That's true. Which, you know, kind of brings up another point. When you read a lot of conspiracy theories, like, you know, why was there a delay in scrambling the jets? And, you know, why weren't they scrambled from a closer airport? Um, there's, there's, you know, a hundred questions like that that you can answer, that you can ask, rather. And it comes down to, again, the conspiracy theorists, the unspoken major premise of a lot of their apparent anomalies is that the government works with perfect efficiency and competence. And therefore, anything that doesn't work perfectly well was deliberate and was planned and had a purpose. When and Now, we're, we're only you know, a couple of weeks after the Katrina uh, hurricane and the flooding of New Orleans, whereas I think history shows that the government is capable of incredible incompetence and confusion and chaos. And in fact, in, in times of crisis, you know, chaos typically rules the day. So most of these anomalies are explainable, you know, on the on the simple basis of incompetence yeah, or I, just I confusion. I don't see how it's possible to run something as complex and massive as the federal government without a constant stream mm-hmm. of errors. Right. I just don't. I just don't see how. We uh, we've witnessed that very recently. Um, right. You know, no no plan is is perfect when it comes to these sudden disasters that we even do have a few days of, uh, of foresight against, and we do try to put, I think, our best uh, our best plans into motion. And there, you know, there's going to be problems, there's going to be uh, setbacks, and there's going to be outright failures along the way. I just think it's the nature of the uh, eno- um, enormous size of the task at hand that, uh, that, that lends to that. Right, so these are people. You know, we're talking about just regular people, not these mythological men in black, you know, who every action and, and is delivered. And even with uh, Katrina, you know, we had days uh, of advance warning. Days. And, mm-hmm. and still we had the endless fall. 9-11 was an inconceivable surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world was a different place before 9-11. Uh, as, at least as far as our security concerns right. go, and our, and our government's response. And nobody, after the first plane hit, nobody thought that it was deliberate. Right. I it, certainly the moment, didn't. The, the moment plane. the second plane hit, everyone then knew it knew. was. Everyone knew. But so that there was that delay. It was collective denial or just inability to conceive that that was a deliberate act. But it just th- that introduced you know, sort of the psychological delay as well. I remember very, very clearly hearing on the radio that a plane, my car radio, that a plane had hit the World Trade Centers and uh, arriving at my location, going inside to look at the TV and being shocked at how massive the damage was to the building because I was imagining a Cessna, a small plane, 
I never imagined for one second that it was a jumbo, you know, a jetliner. Passenger liner, uh, right. A passenger plane. It was, it was astounding how, how much damage there was. My goodness, you know. And, of course, it all began to un, unfold very quickly. Uh, another example of the um, the incompetency argument, you know, using the JFK assassination conspiracy theories as another example, as I remember, um, a lot of the conspiracy theorists made a lot about the the poor job that the uh, pathologists perf- did who performed the autopsy, but again, what they what they either ignore or fail to acknowledge is the fact that the the pathologists who did the autopsy on JFK were not forensic pathologists. In other words, um, they were not trained to do an autopsy on a gunshot victim in order to determine you know, the details of the shooting. So they did more of a standard medical autopsy. And then one would ask, well, why did that happen? Why did you know, right. people do the autopsy who were not qualified? And again, that's where the chaos comes in. At that point in time, the family was getting involved, and they wanted all the secrecy about the body, and they wanted all the pictures taken. They wanted, you know, the, the body brought to a certain hospital, not other ones, even though there weren't the right pathologists there, and they didn't want anybody brought in from the outside. So, they, again, there was just total chaos, and no one really was, um, you know, masterminding these details, just the way things unfolded. So I think that's a good example of, again, just incompetence and and confusion is, is a sufficient explanation for most of the anomalies that conspiracy theorists generate. I think that the same is certainly true of most of the arguments of 9/11. Now, Bob, you were going to bring up another point. Yeah, one of my uh, one of the ones that I've come across a lot is the fact that um, kerosene cannot burn hot enough to melt steel, mm-hmm. and if the steel didn't melt, then how did the towers collapse? And uh, some some facts here: jet fuel burns at from 800 to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's true that uh, steel melts at 2,750 degrees. So if you just look at those facts on the mm-hmm. surface, you would say, well, okay, well, it's got, it's got to be a conspiracy because the facts don't add up. Yeah, that's, that's a you, very, very common point in, that they make, including right. the article that I have in front of me. And then there's a, there's a famous quote um, by a, let's see, uh, New York Deputy Fire Chief Vincent Dunn, had a famous quote, and he said, I've never seen melted steel in a, in a building fire. And this guy's an expert. He wrote a book on uh, called The Collapse of Burning Buildings. And, um, and that's true, but the, the, other, the other part of his quote is that, that he's seen a lot of twisted, warped, bent, and sagging steel. So you don't need to actually have steel melt to cause a problem. Right. You lo- what happens is you're losing you know, the structural integrity, and at 1,100 degrees, steel loses still loses a, a good chunk of a 50% of its, of its strength at 1,100 degrees, right. which is pretty significant. And at 1,800 degrees, um, it's, it's like 90% of its, of its strength. And, that, and that's all you really need. Yeah. And, they, uh, and they've, done, they've done some studies of what they think the fires might have, uh, the temperatures they might have reached. And they're saying that, uh, you know, including the, um, the, you know, the burning materials inside the buildings, right. like rugs and curtains and furniture, they, there could have been pockets... Of fire that hit you know 1,832 degrees. So you're dealing with steel. 
that's at you know at, in many places less than ten percent of its of its strength, mm-hmm. and that's and that's all you really need. And that to me that's that explains it perfectly. You don't yeah. need twenty seven hundred. And you have to understand that you know the towers were you know built at the extreme end of our, in, our engineering capabilities. You know that those towers are huge, and uh, they really were. You know the the, the design was such that it was really extending, you know, the ability of steel to support a building. So it didn't take much. It didn't take much loss of strength in those steel columns for the for the weight, you know, essentially of, of the upper floors to not be supported. And once one floor collapsed. Then it was it was a domino effect. The, the the floors below had much much more weight suddenly dumped upon them, so they all collapsed. Yeah, another guy, another common common theory that's been uh, passed around a lot is the fact that that it was um, it looked the the actual collapse of the buildings looked like a demolition. Right. And they and they and that's their theory that it wasn't it was you know the, the jet was just a, a, a ruse and that the real the real thing that took down the buildings was an actual, you know, a demolition of the buildings. We've all seen, you know, on the Science Channel these uh, these very cool images of of buildings going coming down, and they people compared it to that. And I, I think that was related to uh, a quote some somebody on the scene said, you know, it kind of looked like that. And uh, and that qu- and then of course that quote just totally ballooned into this uh, right. this huge thing that people are people are constantly talking about. And I think he said. Later on, I don't have a hard quote, but um, I think he was pretty much saying, you know, I was just saying that it kind of looked like it. I mean, I didn't mean to imply that, that that's what brought it down. Yeah, well, taking quotes out of context is another another common uh, ploy. What were you saying, Perry? Just that uh, a lot of people, along with Bob saying that it looked like a demolition, the, when the towers collapsed, the, the rubble pile was only a few stories tall. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, people didn't understand why that was. And I remember reading an engineer said, well, because 95% of the building is air. Right. It, right. It's only about, only about 5% of what you see with your eye is the actual walls, is the actual structure. Most of the World Trade Centers, like most skyscrapers, is just air. That's how they're designed. It's mostly space, right? Exactly. That's because that's... that's um, the demised space is what you can rent. That's what's profitable. Right. Mm-hmm. Now they're also the itself is just the, at, at the World Trade Center's building seven also collapsed. And there's a here's a website called What Really Happened, where they right. uh, talk a lot about the collapse of building seven. Um, here again, you know, Bob gave an example of sort of pulling a quote out of context and 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 making it into a conspiracy. Here they they quote um, the the uh, the controller, uh, Larry Silverstein, is saying, we've had such terrible loss of life, maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it. And the author says, there can be little doubt as to how the word pull is being used in this context. You know, pulling pulling it, meaning blow the building and deliberately demolish it and collapse it. It's uh-huh. like, well, I think there could be quite a bit of doubt. I mean, they're saying that he said pull the building, or pull it, that he, he must have been saying, let's demolish the building. There could be no other interpretation of that. Well, wrong, you know. How about let's pull our guys out of that building before it collapses? That, that's a, I think that's a much more straightforward interpretation of what he's saying. Uh, there was an excellent documentary on Nova called Why the Towers Fell. Yeah. And, uh, much maligned, much maligned among the conspiracy theorists, of course. 
Yeah, well, of course, because it's a uh, it's a sober, uh, calm, really engineering perspective uh, of engineers' perspective of why the towers fell. Right, it's an excellent companion website that that's still up. You can find it through PBS.org, and um, you know, I would I would ur- urge everyone to go take a yeah. look at that site. It's it's really very good. Yeah, I mean, in case there's any doubt, I mean, the, the serious scientists and engineers are all know what happened. I mean, no one no one who is who really knows what's going on is saying that there's any problem with the story. It's really just the nutcases that come out of the woodwork, you know, uh, around events like this. There really isn't any serious skepticism about, you know, that that Al Qaeda engineered this terrorist attack. Let's let's sh- let's shift a bit to the Pentagon because that was also attacked on 9/11. Um, that was the third plane to strike. The uh, the pilot of that plane flew it essentially into the base of the Pentagon. Now the Pentagon is a massive, massive structure, and the plane was largely disintegrated by the impact. Now again, keep keep in mind, you know, commercial jets are constructed as lightly as possible because they have to fly. They look like very, very bulky things but in fact they're they're quite hollow and and light uh you have a a plane you know is barreling into a, a fortified structure at high speed again it's like 300 miles an hour filled with filled with jet fuel and it was mostly shredded and vaporized and yet the conspiracy theorists say, well, where's the plane? How come in all the pictures that have been publicly released, we don't see basically large chunks of jet lying on the ground or lying in the building? Well, because it was vaporized. And Again, they use the, they use the kerosene sort of temperature argument and some other sort of hand-waving implausible arguments to, to, to say why it shouldn't be that way. Um, but again, it's very implausible. The, the other thing that they do, again, is uh, apply this sort of anomaly hunting strategy to the, to the Pentagon, essentially making arguments about what the debris should have looked like and, and the mechanics, the way things should have happened. Now, when you have a very high-energy impact or high-energy event, especially something that's unique, like a commercial airliner flying into the Pentagon, that's never happened before or since, the bottom line is we don't know what it's supposed to look like. It's very unpredictable. It is it is literally chaos, and you just can't explain wh- you know why every piece ended up where it did or or what the what the resulting debris was supposed to look like. It's just in my opinion a ridiculous argument. But that's that's the the core of the, um, the conspiracy theorist's argument about the sort of the lack of a plane at uh, at the Pentagon. So, but here's something that's that interests me about that is okay, just extrapolate from their argument. Okay, uh, there's there's a lack of evidence that a plane actually crashed into the Pentagon. Yeah, well, for so the record, so there was like engine. There was a pe- big piece of the engine and fuselage. Right. And of course, those were oh, planted. So there was. Sw- it was undeniable, and and of course, not to mention Flight 77's black boxes and passenger remains. So just kind of ignore that stuff right for now. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess you could always say that. You know, they were planted or they're, you know, just fake stories. But uh, to ignore that, but just extrapolate that a little bit. Okay, it wasn't a plane. Um, you know, 
it was something else. It was a, a truck with explosives. It was, uh, you know, maybe they planted the explosives in the Pentagon or whatever, but it wasn't a plane. But you can't deny that a plane was hijacked. I mean, there was a plane mm -hmm. that took off, and it never land, apparently never landed anywhere. So, so just keep going with that, and what do you have? You've got a plane that's hijacked, and then as a, as a, you know, as a diversionary tactic or whatever, so something happened to that plane. They dumped it in the ocean. You know, they, um, they hid it somewhere so that, you know, it's as part of their, their, their big plan. But why would you hijack the plane in the first place and then not use it? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got this plane. You know, why not use it against a target? Why would you decide well, we're going to hijack it and we're not going to use it against well, a target? Well, again, they're saying that Why the plant the black boxes and the human yeah. remains at the site, you know? You know, wouldn't it make a lot more sense and be a hell of a lot simpler to just use it against the Pentagon? Well, I mean, you just kind of go with that theory and extrapolate, and it makes absolutely no sense. Well, of course, you know, some of the theorists say that, you know, the, the, the government hijacked the plane. You know, it was basically operatives. And so then the, that begs the question, well, then what happened to the jet? You know, if, if a missile or something other than a jet hit the, hit the Pentagon. Unless you're talking to Arabs, then it's most sad that did it. Right. But one conspiracy video that I saw actually argued that well they they landed the jet at a um, at a military airbase they escorted all the people out off the plane and then executed them that 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 was his solution to the to the missing plane problem that the conspiracy theory generates well that was that resolves wow. it nicely it does but sure. it also you know is a good example of again the sort of how grand conspiracies collapse under their own weight. The, the conspiracy generates more problems and, and questions, and then each one has to be answered by expanding the conspiracy to involve more people. So now we have American military uh, essentially hijacking a plane, landing it at an Air Force base, getting rid of the plane, and, and murdering hundreds of people, and, it's, and they're all keeping it secret. Right. Conspiracy theories uh, very often... Will begin to spin out of control, right? Uh, sort of uh, expanding under their own weight. Can I say that? Well, they they, they expand by necessity, and then they just right. sort of collapse in on themselves. Just the the implausibility meter goes through the roof, and then you know they they're talking about how implausible these little anomalies are. Meanwhile, the conspiracy itself is orders of magnitude more more difficult to swallow. Yeah, you know, Occam is turning, turning over in his grave. Just right. these things. Um, there's also one interesting thing is a lot. There were many, many eyewitnesses that saw and/or heard a what looked like a commercial passenger jet fly into the Pentagon. So, of course, if you're a conspiracy theorist and you don't think that that happened, then uh, you have to dismiss all of the eyewitness testimony. But that's like the one legitimate point that they have, and that eyewitness testimony like that is really unreliable. Unfortunately, as we did with the uh, with the twin towers, I mean, because you're in the middle of the, of the city, um, there, there was lots of video of the planes hitting the towers. Of course, as everyone saw over and over again, there's no video. Nobody nobody managed to snap a picture or a video of the plane of the jet hitting the Pentagon. Probably it's just funny. because it's in a more isolated location. Right. It's funny though that if someone did happen to uh, get a video or a picture of it, you know, the, the this specific part of the conspiracy would be would be very different, and uh, there'd be other things popping out yeah. about, you know, well, it wasn't really the plane, and 
you know, it was something, it was, you know, it wasn't Flight 77, it was a plane that looked like, you know, Whatever. they would just totally go off on, on a, some variation. Uh, always engage in selective belief, always, as Steve said earlier, very easy to dismiss any evidence. It's simply manufactured via the conspiracy. Right. And that's where you also have to, to grant to the conspiracists more and more power. Because every time you have to argue that that evidence was manufactured by the people enacting the conspiracy, you have to cede to them more and more power and cleverness in order to, for them to have been able to do that. So whoever you know, faked you know, the, the attack on the Pentagon had to have at their disposal the parts of planes to deposit there as, as fake evidence and had to be able to hide all the evidence of whatever really did happen there. Some people said it was a missile or, or something else, or a bomb. So, but again, they, they just sort of cede unlimited power and ability to, to the conspiracy theorists, as needed. Whatever it is that they had to do, that's what they did. Which, again, that kind of reasoning, it leads to the sort of unfalsifiable position, right? When, whenever you have an open-ended sort of criteria like that. So the, the feature of what it is that you're studying or hypothesizing it has some uh, infinitely malleable attribute or um, unlimited attribute, then you can always use that to explain anything. Uh, and therefore, it becomes unfalsifiable. It's kind of like, you know, again, our favorite example, the intelligent design argument. Well, God could design nature to look like anything he wants it to. He's not constrained in any way. That's what renders it non-falsifiable and therefore not science. Because you can't say, well, you know, if God designed life, it should look a certain way or it should not look a certain way. In, in the case of conspiracy theorists, you can say, well, if this was a conspiracy, you know, then they could or could not have done this. But the conspiracy theorists simply say, well, no, they could do whatever they want. They have all the power they need to do anything it is. Whatever you see there, they did it. And therefore, you, there's nothing you could possibly see, no evidence you could possibly bring to bear that would falsify the conspiracy theory. And then it just evolves into a cult, basically. And the conspiracy theor theorists become a very insular cult. And, they, and they, they're starting out with a lot of the components of a cult, namely an us-versus-them mentality. As I said earlier, you know, they're the army of light and... and the rest of the world, se that separates them, their ability to see the conspiracy is similar to, say, a, a more conventional religion's use of faith, you know. They have... I never understand how they're able to pierce the omniscient conspiracy. Right, and that's the other... The, you know, the self their unending power. The self-contradictory thing is that they have to cede the, the conspiracists all of this unbelievable power and influence, and yet then how could they see through the conspiracy? Right, to them it is laying bare. Right, well... It makes, it makes no sense. It's because... Well, why aren't they taken out? Right, right, right. <laughs> First of all, right, if they were really onto something and the conspiracy theorists really had that much to hide and that much power, we wouldn't be hearing from them. You know, they, they would have been taken out. But also, you know, how is it that it's so obvious to you? I mean, how, how do they have so much power and influence and cleverness and yet they made all of these apparently dumb mistakes that that made it obvious that there was a conspiracy. And again, they, they, they sort of use, they say, just like, you know, a, a cultist 
cultish religion would say that you just have to surrender yourself to faith to whatever the faith is they say well you just have to have an open mind you know towards the conspiracy you have to you have to be able to see it you know they have this ability to see through to see the pattern in the chaos an open mind is good but uh, not so open that your brains fall out right so it's 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 definitely a fascinating psychological phenomenon and you know it often engenders the question of you know why is it that some people if not everyone to some degree uh has this predilection for conspiracies i mean conspiracies are com- there's something very compelling about them you know even as a skeptic there's a certain sort of romantic compelling notion about a, a grand conspiracy uh and i think it it appeals to us on a certain basic I'm not sure that i agree or follow with that how so well I, I just think that well it, certainly a lot of um, fiction a lot of movies you have that as a as a core plot thread uh, the fact that there is some that all of these seemingly random events or disconnected events all are tied together by the dark hand of an evil conspiracy and the the hero who is uncovering it, you know, by because he just see he peeks behind the curtain and he can see what's really going on. That's you know a very it's one of the basic story types that people know how to tell. I, I think it appeals to us on a certain psychological level. I think it, it doesn't appeal to us as skeptics because the logic is so twisted, and, and I think it offends our logical sensibilities. But I think on an emotional level, it, it's very satisfying. You don't agree with that, Perry? Um, I do. I mean, I, I under, now that you've explained it, I guess I understand it a little bit better. I, know, I was just thinking myself if I've ever been found anything alluring about a particular conspiracy theory. That, I probably, that's, yeah, I could, it, that's why I question. Yeah, I mean, just just as a matter of of, um, of fiction, I've, I found it very entertaining. But even on a very you know on a, on a more of a, a smaller level, I think people have a tendency. And this is very well documented within the psychological literature. When evaluating our own actions, we tend to attribute what we do to external factors. You know, I did this because of this external thing that made me do it. I tripped because there was a crack in the sidewalk. When we explain or attempt to explain the actions of other people, by default, we use internal explanations that person tripped because they're clumsy. I tripped because there was a crack in the sidewalk. So that, that's very well established. And the conspiracy theory is kind of an extension of that, where we say these disconnected events are happening because somebody intended them to happen. There's an internal explanation for it. They weren't driven by outside events or external factors. It wasn't just simply a mistake or, or incompetence. This person did it because of their intention to do it or a group of people did it because of the intention. And just you extrapolate from that, and it basically leads you down the road to sort of this conspiracy mindset. Do you see that? I, I do. Yeah. yeah. You agree with that, Bob? Absolutely. I mean, think, yeah. think about I mean, people who um, you get fired. You know, why did you get fired from your job? You know, because these people were conspiring against me. The boss didn't like me. This other coworker was working against me. I mean, that's what people say, you know. More often than well, I'm just not that competent at my job. I didn't try very hard, and and I really deserve to get fired. You know, that's I, I, we haven't mentioned paranoia yet. 
Right. I mean, it, it, it seems to border on that. That is... I, I find that, particularly people who use drugs and things, they're always paranoid about why things are going right. wrong for them. Well, that's, you know, that brings up sort of a mental health angle to this whole thing. And I do think that extreme paranoia, to the point of delusionary paranoia, say, for example, um, what would be manifested by... Uh, uh, decompensated schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenic, is really at an extreme end of the spectrum of of a continuum, you know, from sort of an average person with, with a healthy mindset all the way to somebody who thinks that the CIA, you know, has implanted, you know, transmitting devices in the fillings in their teeth, you know, who has really bizarre... Very right. self-focused. Um, that's typical schizophrenia. Yeah, that, that's typical. But I think right. people exist all along that spectrum, you know. And, and certainly, you know, psych, psycho, psychologists recognize there's a spectrum of sort of paranoid tendencies. And I mean, I know people in my personal life that have. I, I wouldn't say that they're diagnosable or that that they're delusional, but they tend towards conspiracy thinking. It's, it's much, much more appealing to them than I say I would think it is to the average person. And I think that's the, that end of the spectrum is the, are the people that these kind of conspiracies uh, really appeal to. And you, can, you can easily you know, speculate about what the evolutionary advantage of this would be. I mean, being on the lookout for forces working against your own interests is a certain amount of advantage to that. If you were completely without any paranoia, you know, I think people would characterize that as being naive. Just uh, if you never could even consider that somebody might be working against your own interests, that would not be a very adaptive sort of personality to have. And like everything, you know, you, they're, you, they're, the, the healthiest situation is a certain amount of balance. So I think, that, I think that's why I think we all have some capability or some tendency to think about Gee, is there a pattern to these coincidences? Is there a conspiracy against me? Steve, isn't it? Um, could you say that it's a form of pareidolia, or you know, pattern seeking? Yeah, that's that's a good point, Bob. And I've actually likened it to that. I think so. Pareidolia is a phenomenon where you perceive a visual pattern in uh, a in a signal that actually does not contain any real pattern. Um, some random noise. In fact, uh, Bob, you had mentioned to me early before we were recording that th- there was a, a story circulating soon after 9/11 that, like, the face of Satan could be seen in the in the black smoke rising oh, yeah. from the it's, tower. It's a, it's a great picture. It's it is. It is. I used it in uh, the article I wrote about it. But, um, it's a good example of pareidolia. It's just you know the, the smoke is just random patterns, and you watch an hour of black smoke. You know, scrolling up the screen. At one right. point, you know, the shadows and whatever could be perceived by our brains as being being a face. Right. I mean, I'm sure if you look long enough, you might see that you know the, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man right. as well. Right. Or, you like, know, it's, it's like watching clouds go by. And here's, here's, here's a quote. Here's a quote I pulled from my article that I wrote a while back. Um, on this is a quote from Brad Merrill, 17 year old. And he said, uh, looking, you know, looking at the picture of the smoke, he said, it popped, it popped right out at me. I don't see how it could be just sheer coincidence. Right. And, and that, just, that just shows that people, people just aren't aware of, uh, of these things and how, how, yes, it absolutely can be 
you know, sheer coincidence right. and how pareidolia works and pattern recognition and things. Right, how actively our brain tries to fit a pattern to the, to the signals that it's getting. And I agree, Bob, I think that you can make a direct sort of uh, thematic uh, correlation between that and conspiracy thinking, because it's the same thing. Although with pareidolia, right. you're looking for a pattern in random visual information. With conspiracy thinking or paranoia, you're looking for a pattern in chaotic or unrelated events. It's sort of a temporal pattern, right. a conceptual pattern over time. It's sort of it's still it's pattern seeking, and then it's also when you see when you perceive a pattern, and then perhaps. And I know Michael Shermer has speculated about this. Uh, I think even on our podcast where we interviewed him, that perhaps you know human beings are really good at at seeing patterns, and perhaps we're not that good at telling which patterns are real and which patterns are not real. And we tend to err on the side of believing that the patterns that we perceive are real and uh, and ignore or, or do not give enough credence to the possibility that the, the pattern we're seeing is just a, is just a coincidence or an artifact uh, and does not represent a real phenomenon. Of course, that's, what, that's where... Science and skepticism comes in. Science basically is the is uh, is a systematic method of deciding which patterns are real and which patterns are not real. That's what it's all about. You know, one final word we can say about uh, about this is um, I'm sure most of our audience has heard of Nostradamus. Uh, it was said uh, widely after 9/11, shortly after, that he predicted uh, the attacks, like he predicted. Many other things. Um, in many emails that went around, there were some of his quatrains. The, the two most popular were as follows. In the city of God, there will be a great thunder. Two brothers torn apart by, apart by chaos, while the fortress endures. The great leader will succumb. The third big war will begin when the big city is burning. On the eleventh day of the ninth month, two metal birds will crash into two tall statues in the new city, and the world will end soon after. That's pretty good, right? It's, sounds like he got him, got him right on there. He right, it. right. Uh, however, time. there's a you know, sh- slight problem. He never wrote that. <laughs> he never wrote it. That's uh, a little, little He ne- never wrote either of them. Um, the, the 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 last part there just seems to be uh, written by a, a you know an anonymous prankster. But the first four lines. Um, the City of God, the Thunder, the Fortress, all that stuff. They were written by a college student named Neil Marshall. Um, he included them in an article, which he was, which he wrote to debunk Nostradamus. Right, just as an example of a, a, a vague exactly. question. Yeah. How easy it is to make a authentic sounding <laughs> and, uh, you know, Of course, it was grabbed up and, and, and circulated all over the place. and It was total nonsense. Right. But the, the people... I got that, by the way, from the Museum of Hoaxes website, museumofhoaxes.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, uh, again, excellent website. I urge you all to go take a look at it. Uh, it's maintained by a fellow named Alex uh, Boise, B-O-E-S-E. It's very good. So... Uh, you know. I think that proved that college student's point. Yeah, but you don't have his name handy, do you? The college yeah. student? Yeah, I gave it. His name was uh, Neil Marshall. Oh, Neil Marshall, right. So I mean, his point is actually proven by that, the fact that he made sort of a vague 
prophetic sounding statements and you know not too many years later something happened that can, could be construed to to sort of fit his prophecy he's, exactly. he's as good as Nostradamus even better he is even better <laughs> even better right. his quatrain was more believable more convincing and thus that's the one that was circular. more specific and more specific right uh, and the 9-11 one with the two birds, that was just faked. That was, that was written that was after just, the fact. Yeah, that, was that, was, just fake. that was a nice that one. That was retro-dicting, which is always much, <laughs> yeah. much easier than, than pre-dicting. No tr- yeah, Nostradamus wishes he had written that. Exactly. Or even anything that, close to that's it. That's about the clearest quatrain I've ever seen <laughs> squeezed out of Nostradamus. Right. Well, again, it's, uh, it's sort of you know producing vague statements and then letting the pattern recognition you know take over, you know. The the reader is doing all the work there, not the person who's writing them. The the reader is uh, making all the connections. Right, exactly. Well, that that hour went by quickly. Uh, it's an interesting topic. There's a, there's a lot more to uh, to talk about. So, again, the uh, these conspiracy theories tend to hover around uh, very large uh, events, events that have an effect on the, the the psyche, the public psyche, like the assassination of JFK and you know 9/11. People want there to be big explanations for big events. Have you ever heard Challenger conspiracies? Interestingly, I, I can't say that I have. I, I have, although I you know I don't have anything in front of me to give you any details. But you have heard conspiracy theories regarding the show. Yes. Yes, they're, they're definitely out there. Though this is a topic that we will return to. I mean, there are so many conspiracy theories right. out there. We're just really just scratching the surface, just talking about mainly about 9-11. So that's it for this week. Uh, Bob, Perry, Evan, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll see you all next week. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.thenes.com.